Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, in addition to reviewing the week's most important news and announcements from the investment trust sector, I am joined by two guests. The first being Simon Edelston, the manager since 2014 of the £470 million market capitalisation global equity trust Midwind International, formerly managed by Billy Gifford, but now part of the Artemis stable. And the second is uh, Richard Staveley, who is the manager of a small and I think interesting UK small cap trust now known as Rockwood Strategic but formerly known, until last year anyway, as Gresham House Strategic. Uh, The mini saga by which that change came about is something that we did talk about quite a lot last year as it was unfolding. And on Friday, a couple of days after I talked to him, it was announced that Simon Edelson is retiring later this year and handing over the lead managership of Midwind to a new recruit to Artemis, Alex Stanich. I hope that we may continue to hear from Simon in future, as I always find his contributions thoughtful and stimulating, I hope you will too. And the trust is one I've owned and followed for several years. These two trusts, Midwind and Rockwood Strategic, ticker MWY and RKW respectively, do very different things and you could say are a good example of the diversity of approaches you can find in the investment trust universe. I should add here that for reasons of space, I'm including only an extract from the conversation with Richard Staveley, which runs to uh, just a little over 10 minutes uh, and comes at the end of this week's podcast. But if this specialist vehicle is of interest to you, the full 35-minute discussion is available for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, along with our other regular features, which this week include a profile of Lowland, ticker LWI, the UK Equity Income Trust, run by the very experienced team of James Henderson and Laura Foll at Janus Henderson, plus a summary of all the latest announcements by investment trusts, the usual performance data, and a further update on the Moneymakers model portfolios. Next week's main podcast guest will be another long-serving fund manager, Bruce Stout, who runs uh, Murray International, the Global Equity Income Trust for Aberdeen. That episode may be a little shorter than normal because I shall be in Holland most of next week, taking the opportunity to visit the great Vermeer exhibition that the Rijksmuseum has assembled in Amsterdam, featuring 28 of the 37 surviving canvases that Vermeer is known to have painted. I'm looking forward to that bit of a treat. Turning to the markets this week, there's been some vindication for those who've cast doubt on the durability of the rally in risk assets we've seen over the past uh, three to four months. Bond yields edged higher by around 15 basis points on both sides of the Atlantic. The US 10-year Treasury yield is now pushing close to 4%, while gold retreated by around $30 an ounce and the dollar firmed a little. The S&P 500 was down by nearly 3% over the week while the German and Japanese equity markets were off around 1%, the FTSE 100 down 1.6%, and the small and mid-cap indices a fraction more. The investment trust index we follow, which tracks the performance of the 190-odd trusts that are in the FTSE All Share Index, was meanwhile down more than 2.8% on the week, as the average discount widened further to around 14%. Year-to-date, the Investment Trust Index is now up by just 1.4% compared to uh, the 6% gain it was showing at the start of the month. 
Essentially, therefore, the champagne sparkle of January, if I can put it that way, has given way to a more sober February. Uh, most notable has been the extent to which China and Asia-Pacific trusts have given up two-thirds of the gains they recorded in the first month of the year. Turning to corporate news, it's been another relatively quiet week, albeit with a number of significant results announcements. Pride of place probably goes to two of the bigger renewable energy trusts, Greencoat UK Wind, ticker UKW, which reported a 31% increase in NAV total return for 2022, and expects to increase its dividend by 13.4% in line with the annual rate of retail price inflation. The only renewable energy trust still to keep its dividend explicitly linked to the RPI. We also heard from the Renewables Investment Group, ticker TRIG, T-R-I-G, managed by Infrared Partners, which confirmed its 18.9% NAV total return in 2022, and said it's raising its target dividend by a more modest 5%. The managers hinted they would be keen to raise more equity if the shares go back to a premium. The trust, which invests in a range of wind, solar and storage projects in the UK and Europe, is currently trading a discount of around 6% and yields 5.75%, compared to the 4.8% discount and 6.7% yield of Greencoat UK Wind. A more recent newcomer to the renewable energy field, Harmony Energy Income, a ticker HEIT, a battery storage trust, this week announced an equally impressive NAV per share total return of 24% for its first near 12-month reporting period since its IPO in October 2021. The discount there is 3% and it's so far paid 2p in dividends and is paying a further 2p for the most recent period. Another renewable energy trust, Next Energy Solar Fund, ticker NESF, which is on a much wider 10% discount and has a duller performance record than some of its peers in the group of renewable trusts which came to the market in 2013-2014, i.e. around 9-10 years ago. Meanwhile, said it's looking for shareholder approval to increase the amount it can invest in battery storage products. Everyone wants to be in battery storage at the moment. There were also quarterly updates from VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, ticker GSEO, Q4 NAV down 3.8%, and Aberdeen European Logistics Income Q4 NAV down minus 8%, but the total return was actually up 1.4% in sterling because of currency movements. In the commercial property sector, which is still suffering from the impact of rising interest rates, supermarket income REIT, ticker SUPR, reported a six-month like-for-like valuation decline of 13.3% based on a net initial portfolio yield of 5.5% while the Regional Office Specialist Regional REIT announced a like-for-like valuation decline of 12.1%, but increased the dividend, and the fund managers made the comment that they, at least, uh, maybe not everyone would do this, see an air of optimism around as more people return to the office after COVID. Polar Capital Financials, ticker PGCF, meanwhile, sitting on a 5% discount, reported that it underperformed the 8.6% total return of the benchmark by 6.7% in the year to the end of November last. Among companies reporting interim results, Ruffer Investment Company, uh, ticker RICA, which targets a positive annual return every year of more than twice the Bank of England rate, announced a 4.8% total return per share in the second half of 2022, bringing the whole year return up to 8.1%, very much in line with the 7.2% annualised rate of return it has achieved since its IPO in 2004, achieving that with low volatility at the same time. European Opportunities Trust, ticker EOT, 
reported a 0.4% total return for the six months to the end of November, 2.5% behind its benchmark. It's cutting its fees and conceded that the discount, which it says it aims to keep to less than 10%, remained, I quote, outside the desired parameters, comma, despite some buybacks. This trust has a continuation vote coming up in November this year, and no doubt we'll be hoping that its five-year performance record improves to match the much stronger longer-term returns it reported when the manager, Alex Darwell, and the trust was still part of Jupiter. On the corporate side, AT85 Global Mid-Market Infrastructure Income said that it was again deferring its planned IPO, this time until the summer because of market conditions. And finally, the board of a small investment trust called The Investment Trust, ticker INV, which despite its name is probably fair to describe as uh, obscure, said that it is studying options to grow the trust or wind it up. Its market capitalization has fallen to little more than 15 million. The discount, which had gone out to around 20%, narrowed in response to this news. So this week, it was a pleasure to catch up again with Simon Edelston, the manager of the Midwind Investment Trust which sits in the global equities sector and where he's been manager since 2014. Last year, as we know, was a very tough year for all equity managers and global equity managers not excluded. When I spoke to Simon, my first question was, your trust had a down year, the first one it's had since you've been in charge, but it was a relatively modest decline, though underperforming your benchmark index. What are your reflections on the year just gone? How did you navigate it? And was it better or worse than you expected, uh, given the circumstances? Thank you for asking me along, Jonathan. Always a pleasure. The way I put it is the last two years have seen the return of inflation. It started off quite modest. And then with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh, you got a fuel price inflation on top of inflation, which was showing evidence in, in the economy as we came out of the pandemic. And so for equity managers, it struck us that it was worth looking back seeing how far equity markets had risen since the global financial crisis 2008. We'd had a massive bull market in global equities. And in the last few years of that, despite the pandemic, shares had run ahead of their underlying cash flows. And so growth stocks in particular did look quite vulnerable to any setback. And the inflation creeping into the system and the massive amounts of bond buying that central banks had done, not just before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, all that seemed to need to end. So you had to prepare your portfolio a bit for um, higher interest rates. And that is what we think the markets had to adjust to over the last couple of years. In terms of what we did, we took some profits and reduced our exposure to technology stocks. I think we may have covered this in our previous meeting, but we sold stocks like Adobe and PayPal, reduced the amount of money we got in stocks, which traded on very, very high PEs. And that protected the fund reasonably well in the year to, you know, February 2022. But over the last year, February 2023, as we're speaking today, it became clear that we hadn't done enough of that. So we've done a decent amount. It's, uh, the last year has, has not been a great year. I think our problem was for the last year that the money that we'd taken out of what we saw as expensive American tech companies, principally American tech companies, we put back into stocks which we think have a fantastic future, automation companies, particularly in Japan. So a sort of switch into much cheaper stocks and value stocks and stocks with a good long-term growth potential. Um, but they were dreadful last year. <laughs> I mean, the yen went down even more than sterling. China remained closed all year. 
So we think that this investment has fantastic legs for the long run, but it certainly didn't help us. And we ended up 6% behind the index last year, which is, I wouldn't have expected in our star to beat the index. And clearly, we didn't have as bad a year as most people in quality global growth. But all the same, I'm rather disappointed that that switch into value didn't work a bit better. You have the opportunity to go, I think, up to 20% in cash in your investment trust. Did you do that? And uh, obviously, you might wish you did more of that if you didn't do 20% in cash. But that's a pretty rare occurrence, right, when you want to do that, because essentially, you're then into market timing. Uh, you are into market timing. The last time I did that was in 2008, running a different investment trust. We were running the Electric and General Investment Trust in those days. But 2008, global financial crisis, one, you had a proper bear market, not this puny thing we've seen last year. I mean, I know it's been expensive, but the market itself hasn't been that bad. It's up to your manager to try to protect your capital during a relatively minor, relatively regular sort of bear market like the one we saw last year. Uh, But the second thing is that you knew that cash was going to lose your investors' real wealth. Whereas in 2007, 2008, you got 6.5% in the bank and there was only 4% inflation. So having money in the bank was okay, even after fees for investors. There was nothing wrong with it. Last year, 10% inflation in the UK. What did you get in the bank? 1% if you were lucky. I know it's gone up a bit now. But, you know, I can't take fees of investors hoping that I'm going to increase their real wealth and just leave it in the bank. So we ran the fund pretty much all year with no debt. But we, we didn't run cash levels up. You know, we tried to invest and tried to make real money and tried to avoid the market timing issue. That's a good point you make about inflation. Uh, that is a difference from where we were. You talked about you, you had to change the portfolio. Everybody had to rethink the way they approached their portfolios. Implicit in that, I guess, is the assumption that we're not going back to the world we had before. So in other words, we're not going back to the post-GFC world of very low inflation, very low interest rates, and central banks doing everything they can to not do anything, basically. (laughs) So we've entered a new world, and the central bankers are talking tough. Uh, Are you one of those who actually believe the central bankers, or are you one of those who are uh, fighting the Fed to some extent uh, at this point? I'm wary of central bankers. Obviously, I've learned not to believe any of their predictions, (laughs) but you've got to believe what they say they're going to do with rates. So, yeah, I'm bewildered that some people are clinging on to the old paradigm and just say, oh, rates are going to go back to where they were and we're going to go back to a tech-led bull market and nobody's going to care about value for money because the public cares about value for money. The public is being offered for the first time for 10 years, including people approaching retirement age, yields, nominal yields, (laughs) which are much more attractive than they've been for 10, 12 years, 14 years. And so the hurdle for investing money at risk in equities has gone up and it's not going to come down. We could get into a debate about whether the interest rates have gone high enough, (laughs) but I do not think it is sensible for an equity manager to assume that interest rates are going to go straight back down again or that inflation is just going to go away because the fair is wanted. Um, I don't think we've got galloping inflation. I, I also think that three months ago, there was a level of gloom in the market which was over the top. You know, people were talking about gas rationing in Europe. People were talking about, you know, hard landings left, right and center, mainly because the yield curve was heavily inverted in America, which is this sort of famous signal that the world's coming to an end. But the thing we knew about the yield curve was that it was being manipulated at both ends by central banks. You know, so it doesn't necessarily give out the classic signal 
that it used to give out when central banks didn't fiddle around with it. But, you know, the biggest player in the yield curve at both ends is the central bank. They're either buying at the long end, buying at the short end, setting at one end or the other. So we're in a different age. Going back to the other point you made, quantitative easing, which is the buying of bonds by central banks, we may have already seen in Japan, which has been the biggest practitioner of this, that there are limits. You know, they seem to have actually run out of bonds to buy <laughs> because yes, they now own a, over half their bond market. And, you know, you end up with a sort of nationalized money system. And, you know, we've got a new governor of the Bank of Japan. Let's see what he has to say over the next few months. But what one suspects that he can just see that there's an end to this policy. You can't do it forever. And nobody wants to go into totally uncharted territory. So even the Japanese may stop buying as many bonds and certainly the Bank of England, let alone the Fed, have decided to start allowing more bonds to mature. That's all that this reversal of policy, that they'll just stop buying more bonds and allow the bonds they own to mature. So some of the shock absorbers in the market are taken away by that. And for me as an equity investor, that just means you've got to pay more attention to value for money and what you own in the equity market. Well, while we're on the subject of Japan, you mentioned that as a new uh, governor of the Bank of Japan coming along. We don't know, as you say, exactly what he's going to do. But it would obviously be a very convenient moment to finally abandon the policy that they've had of yield curve control and so on, which, is, as you say, has been beginning to burst at the seams a little bit. Put that in the context, though, of where we are in terms of American interest rates and, and UK and European interest rates. Is that going to be the factor that's driving currency movements around the world, dollar weakening, yen perhaps strengthening again? How do you think that plays out and how does that affect you? Well, there's been a huge comfort in borrowing in yen and leaving money in high-yielding currencies around the world. Last year, of course, the dollar ended up a high-yielding currency compared with the yen, so that was fine. But in other years, it's been emerging market currencies. This is a game played in massive scale, not just by hedge funds, but also by companies. Even Japanese companies leave their money outside the yen. So if it reverses, even if it moderates a bit, the danger is that these things can flip back quite vigorously. Uh, the last time we had a period like this was the late 1980s, mid-1980s. And uh, all the central banks had to go and gather at a swanky hotel called the Plaza in New York, and they all agreed to try to get the end down. And, and it ended up with some very big financial imbalances and, and big moves in the market. The market actually zoomed up. There was a massive bull market <laughs> as Americans bought more and more Japanese consumer goods in, in the late 80s. Um, but there the did end up being a bit of a crash around 87, rather nasty one. You may remember the Japanese equity market by 87 was 50% of the MSCI World Index. Indeed. Today it is video. 6% of the MSCI World Index, and it's a big economy. So just for us, we think that Japan represents too little of global equities now, many decades on. We think there are some very good businesses there. So we're very overweight Japanese equities compared with most global equity funds. We don't particularly make a currency bet here, but, you know, if it's only 6% of your money, if we lose money as we lost last year on the currency, you know, because it's already gone down, we're unlikely to lose that much. But we do think that there's a fantastic opportunity to bounce back. Japan has hardly exited COVID yet. Obviously, China exiting COVID is very big good news for a lot of Japanese companies delivering goods. We have two sets of investments there, really. The automation companies, and you can imagine higher global inflation persuades businesses to get on and try to improve the productivity of their factories. So order books in automation are fantastic around the world at the moment. And then the other bit is, is these Japanese bank holdings. 
And if Japanese interest rates go up, the banks go up very, very quickly indeed. We've already made quite good money out of them the last few months. But they're a sort of counterbalance. I think this is one of the important things about managing a portfolio in the world we're entering with higher interest rates, but still with a lot of debt about and with smaller shock absorbers from central banks. I think that there's a greater importance in having a portfolio which has good portfolio balance. This thing of diversification has not really been worth its salt the last 15 years. You know, it's been worthwhile having basically an undiversified portfolio stuck in American tech stocks. The last couple of years shows that a bit of diversification is quite worthwhile. So if inflation overshoots, Japanese banks will do well. But the tech stocks we've still got in America, which we think are much better value now, they probably won't do so well. So at least we got some balance. I think this is the key thing that a fund manager should be trying to do, to look at the opportunities in the world, but also the risks in a higher inflation, persistently higher inflation world. 4% inflation, not massive. But just make sure that you've got value for money and also good balance. The other side of that dynamic is you're trying to get diversification, but uh, with hindsight, you'll always wish you'd done more or something else, which is uh, precisely uh, a kind of... We only sold a quarter of our tech stocks. We wish we'd sold all of them. At least we did yeah. something. <laughs> you know, we did, we did a decent amount. But you always feel like that. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's the nature of the game. A lot of people saying, well, the dollar has turned decisively and maybe we're heading for another plaza agreement or something, some kind of coordinated attempt to, to get the dollar down. Do you think that's something we should be thinking about or even uh, or worrying about or trying to do something about? Well, as I said, Jonathan, I just put a little bit of money in case that happens, but I don't try to put odds on it. <laughs> Um, you can Very see neat. the pressures. But what I find unusual is a lot of people have still got growth-oriented, quality growth portfolios, which are quite expensive, but they don't have that balance at all. So do the people who own these funds understand that they should probably have a bit of that balance for themselves? Because if it happens, there'll be a, another big leg down in US tech, just on the valuations. It's not about whether the company is doing well or badly. You know, Companies that are up still on 30 times earnings will go to 20 times earnings. Um, the tech sell-off won't have finished. But the point is that the same scenario suggests that, yeah, currencies like the yen are probably going to do better and things like Japanese financials are probably going to do better because that's how the system works. And let's just talk then about tech before we move on, because obviously that has been the most headline-making, most dramatic move we've seen over the last, uh, well, yeah. Last year, I think you were on record as saying that you thought Alphabet was still a good bet. and It hasn't done very well. It's down 30 40% or something. These things happen. Is it a case where you really need to be distinguishing between what kind of big tech you're buying, basically? Is that part of the process? I mean, you own Microsoft, I think, um, yep. and you still own Alphabet, do you? I imagine yep. you do. What's happened to the valuations? And as you said, they could go further down. But um, do you think they're now at a more uh, sustainable level anyway in this new environment that you're talking about? Yeah. So the only thing I can say in my defense is we only own two of the five big tech stocks. So if you take the fangs, we did really well, because in the way in which we run money, we either own something or we don't. So the fact that we own no Amazon, no Facebook, no Tesla, made up for the fact that we own some Microsoft and Alphabet. The other thing is, in terms of the index, because I, I spread the money around the fund buy stock without regard to how big a company is. So even our Microsoft owning holding, which we're still very enthusiastic about, <laughs> is smaller than the index weight. I mean, these stocks have ended up enormous in the index. 
I mean, I'm not very interested in the index, but, you know, we start off talking about the index relative performance, so we need to check back on it. Apple itself, I think, at the moment is 5% of the global index, which is about the same size as the UK equity market. So having none allows me to have quite a lot of holdings and other things and, and get quite a lot of other things wrong as long as Apple goes down. So we're underweight tech and were last year, particularly these very big ones, particularly stocks like Tesla. It's quite interesting. Two years ago, I wrote an article about Tesla because I have a column in the FT every now and again. And um, looking back, it was the one which got by far the most comments and they were all rude and they're all from Tesla enthusiasts. I mean, really aggressive Tesla enthusiasts and fan club. And the shares are now, you know, a lot less than half of what they were then. So you don't need to get too many. And I mean, that was simply because I mean, it was a fantastic business, amazing business, but it was too expensive. So fund managers talk a lot about their valuation process and their discipline. I mean, looking back at the last two years, there are some questions to be asked here. Anyhow, so moving on, where are we now on value for money in tech? There is value for money in tech. But what I think we've discovered, all the tech stocks fell on two things. Firstly, the valuations were too high, even against sales, let alone against any sort of profit. And, and we're back to that year 2000 problem. You remember the previous TMT bubble where people were making up cash flows over the next 10 years and discounting them back at zero interest rates and saying, oh, eventually this company will make some money in 2035 or something. And so we can justify the share price. I mean, you can make that stuff up as you go along. And, you know, the lessons learned from there still need to be applied. But the other thing was the biggest tech stocks, especially in the figures we've seen recently, just aren't growing as quickly as people expected. So to take my two favorites, Microsoft, the cloud computing side is slowing. Azure, it's still fantastically profitable and still growing quite well, but it's not growing at well over you know 12%, which is what was justifying the rating a couple of years ago. So they're slowing there. In terms of Google, I mean, firstly, it's an advertising company ultimately. And so people were worried about hard landing in America and big American and European advertisers paying less for their advertising slots on Google and the regulatory regime has tightened up. Actually, as people are worried less about hard landing, Google shares have actually performed very well this year, not last year. So they've actually been quite a good holding. We have actually topped up the holding in the investment trust in the last few months, and we've made some good money out of it. Is it reasonable value for money? Yes. Is it an exciting high growth stock? No. What it is, is a very profitable company, possibly too profitable. And so when you see a company with massive margins like that, you know the regulators and the tax man's going to want a bit more of that cake. It's too big to escape attention. But the most important thing I'd say is that the mid cap tech stocks, which actually look more expensive than the mega caps, seem to us to offer much better growth potential. So we have gone back to some tech stocks. Because we don't own many of these really big ones, we can afford some smaller holdings in some of the medium-sized ones. You remember I mentioned we sold Adobe two years ago. We've gone back and bought a holding in that quite recently. The market punished it for buying one of its competitors on a very high rating. Well, I mean, the business they bought is an excellent business. So the shares have come down, and we now, as new shareholders, buy the old Adobe plus a faster growing extra business on a lower rating. That seems to us all right. 
Adobe, you know, does all the um, desktop publishing software. You know, that that's the market leader. And as you know yourself on your website, you know, we all spend more time trying to make sure that we have very good graphics with everything we do. So it's still got that good long-term growth story, not as good as 10 years ago, but much better than these mega cap stocks. So what we're looking to do in that area and other areas is find really good, very long-term growth stories, which is still intact, which are on lower ratings than they were on two years ago, which is starting to hit. But we're buying these against a core of a portfolio where we brought the average multiple of the portfolio down a long way anyway. So we can afford to buy some slightly expensive things at the moment without the average multiple getting too high. Before we move on from big tech, you've uh, had a few things to say in the past about founder entrepreneurs and the dual share classes or triple share classes or whatever they have in a lot of these big tech stocks. Do you think we're going to see that sort of problem come home to roost? The problem being that the people who started the business have shares which are basically more valuable and can outvote others, ordinary shareholders like you or I. Do you think that's the problem? Is that going to get resolved soon? Do you think they'll have to be forced to recant, as it were, and change their share classes? Or is it a risk you have to still take on? I don't see any improvement on that side, I'm afraid, in terms of governance. And I don't see any political will to do it at the moment. You look at the Hill report in the UK. I mean, the Hill report suggested that the UK authorities should allow dual voting classes in the UK, which we spent the whole of my career trying to get rid of. It has been dropped, I think, that proposal. But no, there don't seem to be many improvements. And I do think you have to take it into consideration in terms of how businesses behave. I, I certainly think one of our reasons for not owning Meta was that we didn't feel that the management would listen to anyone and they'd plough off into the meta world. <laughs> and yeah. so they did. And so that's one of the reasons we own no shares in it. It's also one of the reasons we still hold hardly any shares in China because we're still concerned that political interference there is getting bigger. So um, it's one of the other issues that is rising with the more inflationary environment. Governments interfere in capital markets more around the world, not just China. Yes, I mean, I suppose the point about Musk, or as you mentioned, uh, Meta and going off into the metaverse is sort of man on a mission, spending all the money that the company makes on a thing that seems to be a personal project. Some people would say, I think, that against that, you've got a bunch of short-termist fund managers who aren't very good at allowing visionaries to invest for the longer term. Yeah, so quite I guess right. That, that I would... mean, you know, Tesla went up a lot <laughs> before it went down. So, you know, I'm sure Mr. Musk will turn around and say it's sour grapes on my part that I didn't buy them early enough. So uh, I've never bought them at all. I mean, we're only looking to buy 60 companies around the world. I want to invest the money in companies where the management seems to be on our side. It's that simple. And there are so many companies like that run by, you know, brilliant people dedicated to what they do, investing for the future on sensible valuations. That's it. We don't need to venture out into megalomaniac land. <laughs> do you think that that is happening sufficiently in Japan then to justify your increasing holdings in Japanese? Corporate governance there has been a problem in the past. Everybody says it's getting better. Is it getting better? It's getting better, but on a Japanese timescale, which is fast Pretty enough slow. for me, but slow. But I think that over the last 10 years, the improvements in return on equity in Japan are, are very notable. You know, Japanese companies are, have been slowly moving away from prioritizing market share over profitability, which has been the key problem in the past. And you're starting to see takeovers there. There are a couple of Japanese trusts who just focus on businesses which are being taken over, and, and they've done very, very well recently. Although one or two of our worst performing shares, the automation stocks, Japanese, some of our best performing shares have also been Japanese companies. 
second best performing share, third best performing share I had over the last year was Nippon Telephone, a pillar of the establishment if there ever was one. But it's what I call a cockroach stock. Even nuclear war won't stop the cockroach from chugging along, making money in Japanese phones. And that's what it did. So in a bear market like last year, even with the yen going down, the shares carried on going up, carried on paying a big dividend. And that's a company which has looked after its shareholders. I mean, they've had no growth for 25 years, 30 years. Haven't been able to put up phone charges for 30 years, unlike British Telecom, which sends us a new bill every spring, as you may have noticed, whacks the price up every year. Uh, But despite that, they've just taken the cash flow, shrunk the number of shares in issue, proper modern corporate governance, got the cost down and the share price keeps going up. So it can be done. And that obviously is a market leader, very close to government, very influential in the Japanese corporate world. But it's patchy. And the other thing I'd say about my Japanese portfolio is we're not in the cheapest shares. We're in the companies whose managements have already shown dedication to governance. So we're not playing an improvement in governance. We're buying world-class companies based in Japan who've already got good governance. Perhaps you could just extend that then. You mentioned China, and obviously it is a big part of the emerging market index, but other emerging markets, which quite often you tend to steer clear of for those kind of reasons, political risk and corporate governance not being perhaps ideal, and you had nothing in Russia, fortunately, for very good reasons. But we see this strong market recovery since October, November, which I think I have to give you credit. You wrote an article saying you thought it was things are going to get better, and they have done. And the US market is up 20% or something, which is pretty good going. And China seems to finally change its COVID policy, even though that means more people will die. It means that the economy will go faster. But you're still avoiding China by and large, are you? Yeah. And what, what do you feel about this 20% rise in the, well, the US market, I think it is? Does it feel like that's enough for now? Or, you know, would you write the same article again today? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, uh, I'm afraid. So I, I did feel that the bear market had at least accommodated the rise in interest rates that was necessary. We could argue about whether interest rates have gone up high enough or not, but we're not bond investors, so we don't have to spend all day arguing about it. We can talk about something else. I actually think that central banks will be perfectly happy to sit there with rates roughly where they are. In Europe, they've got to go higher, UK and Europe, but you know, not a lot higher. And then we'll sit there and we'll see how much difference that makes to inflation. I suspect it will not get inflation anywhere near 2%. And so I suspect that sometime late next year, i.e. 2024, we'll need to put rates up further. But you may notice 2024 will be after the American election. (laughs) Yes. So however independent you think the central banks are, there are political issues here. You cannot create a recession to get rid of the last bit of inflation at this point in the political cycle. I just think it's unrealistic. You haven't got Volcker running the central bank these days. You've got much more pragmatic people. (laughs) Uh, But the problem also isn't so big. You know, we're not dealing with 20% inflation in the UK and, you know, Mrs. Thatcher and all that stuff. So I think you just invest on the basis there's 4% inflation. You don't assume that the war in Ukraine is getting better. I think that's a mistake that people are making. I know the energy prices have gone down, but it looks like it's escalating. And from that point of view, the other point I'd make about China is America and China are not on good terms at the moment. They're on worse terms. So again, investing in China has a straightforward geopolitical risk to it. It's not just about whether the Chinese government are happy for capitalism to carry on. You know, it's just a riskier place to invest. And you don't have to invest there. You can invest elsewhere. So I did think the market had fallen far enough. In terms of our valuation processes, in the last quarter of last year, we found a lot more stocks worth buying. 
back to valuation measures we hadn't seen against cash flows, we hadn't seen for a number of years. And I'm sure that most of the fund managers you're interviewing have been very pleased by how well their individual investments have coped, both with the pandemic and with rising rates and with inflation. You may be interested that the places that we found really good value for money, I mentioned Japan, the other place is Europe. Because, of course, at the end of last year, I think a number of global equity investors, particularly US-based ones, looked at Europe and said, oh, that's quite near Russia, isn't it? <laughs> and they, you yes. know, they're going to do... Must, must be bad, yeah. yeah. You know, inflation's higher than it's ever been, and the central banks run by somebody who doesn't seem to be as clear and consistent. And, you know, we remember the bad times when they put up rates and the Italian government couldn't pay interest. You know, there are 101 reasons to abandon Europe last autumn. And so, of course, on the other side, we were finding some stocks to buy because they're really good European companies trading on the lowest ratings that you can see, especially if you're prepared to put up with a little bit of cyclicality. So the trouble for us investing in Europe, in our themes, we have these themes that we like, such as automation. There are only about two or three stocks in Europe which are major in global automation. Healthcare companies in Europe don't tend to be as strong globally as the American ones. So we find it difficult to find stocks which fit in our big themes in Europe. But we have managed to buy a few, particularly companies which will benefit from the massive amounts of money being spent on trying to get carbon out of the atmosphere. Now, I don't want to talk about net zero too long, but clearly the very high gas prices last year mean that the net zero planning has got to be more pragmatic going forwards and, and worry about value for money. And again, trying to make sure that households which don't have much money don't get hit by gas bills like the gas bills they saw. So although gas is part of the problem, you can't just price hydrocarbons incredibly high to drive the hydrocarbons out the system. You've got to spend 20, 30 years doing this. You don't just name a date and say, whatever it costs, we're going to do it because whatever it costs is not a politically acceptable solution. On the other hand, as the amount of renewables being paid for goes up, you know that there are going to be winners who just make the picks and shovels to get the renewables into the system. In the Investment Trust, for what it's worth, we, we actually have a holding in a British battery storage company that you may have bumped into called Gore. Yes. Which, you know, 6% yield done doing very nicely out of stabilizing the British grid. Whenever you increase the renewables, because the wind only blows sometimes, you need battery storage to balance supply and demand. So that's been a perfectly good holding for us. I mean, it's done nothing in a falling market over the last year, uh, but paid out a 6% yield. I mean, these things are fine. But in terms of European cyclicals, we've got a decent sized holding in a stock called Schneider, French business, world-class business, incredibly consistent track record. It makes everything from plugs to electric cables to stuff you need to plug in a nuclear power station to the grid. I mean, it, all, all the way through, but particularly related to construction activity. And of course, it was on its back last year because everyone thought, oh, you know, it's cyclical, you know, it's going to have a very tough time. Actually, it had figures last week, got through last year very well. Cope with the inflation, managed to put up the prices of what it makes, slightly ahead of the cost increases of the plastics and, and metal that it has to buy. And, and so that's proved very successful holding for us already. But, you know, it's taking opportunities when the market's gloomy in parts of the world. So we probably never had as much in Europe over the eight years I've run this trust as we have today. And we, yeah, we just picked up a few of those cyclical plays in our low-carbon world theme, particularly. If I look at the portfolio you've got now, and you said you made quite a lot of changes, 
more than 18 months ago, 2021, 2022. If I look at this near the top, you've got your largest holding, according to your last fact sheet, is LVMH, which is presumably quite pricey, but a very, very good company and still expanding, we know. Pfizer, Mitsubishi, Unilever, Microsoft, Nestle, IBM. So would your top 10 look materially different to what it would look like, uh, say, 18 months ago? So LVMH is on 25 times earnings for this year with a yield of 1.5. But that's because it's run recently. So the shares are 800 euros at the moment. They were 600 euros last October. So as I say, in Q4 last year, there were a lot of really obvious, and fortunately we did top up our LVMH at the lows. We still don't think it's that expensive because all those numbers are on China being closed. And as you can imagine, the, the China reopening story when you're selling Louis Vuitton handbags is quite a big factor for you. And also, of course, they sell a lot of brandy there. People forget yes. about how important the Mary Hennessy side can be. So again, on a two-year view, I don't think LVMH is particularly expensive, but it's too expensive for us to own them. Going back to the question you asked about the top 10, yeah, there are a couple of stocks in the top 10 which have got into the top 10 by being steady and defensive. Companies like IBM, not at the top end. And so those are the stocks that we're taking profits in now because they've sort of done their job. nt and I mentioned earlier, they've done their job. As we're now trying to pick out more mid-cap long-term growth stocks across the whole portfolio, not just technology. In fact, I think one of the features that people underestimate is how much technology growth, if you like, there is in lots of other sectors. You know, you can talk to railway companies about how they're using digital technology to make railways work better. You can talk to old-fashioned advertising companies about how important it is to use technology to coordinate advertising campaigns. So we just bought back a holding in Omnicom, which is old-fashioned advertising agency like WPP in the UK. It's the world leader. Uh, Again, obviously a cyclical, but on a very modest rating. I think that's on 14 times earnings, you know, for a big American company. So not all American companies are expensive and not all American companies that benefit from digitalization are expensive. So that's where we think the, the value for money is at the moment. Second tier stocks. One of the interesting things about your themes, of course, is how widely or how perhaps sometimes surprisingly they can reach out into other areas. So, for example, I think one of your themes is screen time. I mean, we're recording this on Zoom. Uh, I spend an awful lot of time sitting in front of a screen, unfortunately. But there are lots of ways you can play that theme. And I think one of them, I mean, you mentioned, I think, people wearing glasses, for example. Yeah, so some of the screen time stops. One of the things about it is it's sort of a necessity in life. It's one of those things you're not going to give up, even if you're running out of money as a consumer. One of the last things you'll give up. You may give up your your subscription Zoom account. You won't, but uh, some people might. But you're not going to give up your mobile phone. I mean, nobody's going to give it up. So the phone companies did us very nicely during the bear market. And we've been reducing our holdings there because they don't have recovery potential. They're just classic defensives. But then the other aspect of screen time is is things like people who make mobile phones. They've been very heavily downrated over the last year. Apple hasn't, but the other one has Samsung. So uh, we bought back Samsung recently because that's the big supplier of phones, particularly in Asia and China. So um, very modestly rated, big semiconductor maker as well. So people are worried about the cycle there. We've added that to that theme. The other area of that theme we had last year didn't work, which was Disney. And so we we sold our Disney as it became apparent that the streaming price and cost board was just getting worse and worse. And we were worried that people would look at their budgets and say, 
where we've got, you know, three different streaming services here and they all cost whatever, £12 a month. We're only watching two of them or one of them and start cancelling. And it's not clear what's going on at Disney. They got into streaming very, very late. They've sat their chief executive this year. They rehired the previous one who's back earning perhaps... Better be careful about this. But last time I saw he was paying himself $100 million a year and hadn't really got streaming right, which is the big call of his career. So that seemed rather a lot of money to be paying somebody if they hadn't got the main strategic decision right. And then on top of that, their films are not doing terribly well. I think perhaps they're a bit too politically correct or they keep kowtowing to putting China content in to cheer up the censor in China and then the Americans sort of spot that. And, you know, they're in a difficult place because they've got to be everything to everyone. But if you're everything to everyone, you're probably not very entertaining. Anyhow, so we sold our Disney. We lost a bit of money on that. And we're not going back to the streaming companies until this war's sorted out. I think it's quite important that when people look at the fund, they sometimes compare our portfolio with out-and-out growth, quality growth funds, which other people in the global growth sector manage. I think it's quite important for us, and it showed its worth, that we cover companies like telephone companies and railway companies, which other people just think are too boring. But they have their role, you know, particularly in, in more difficult market conditions like last year. So they allow us to balance the portfolio, I mean, let alone Japanese banks. This is our way of having a slightly broader vision of companies that we feel are part of a successful portfolio. Well, let's just then come back to talk about the Investor Trust a little bit more, not just what you own, but uh, about the trust itself. I mean, last year was interesting, your last full financial year, because you paid a special dividend. You have a progressive dividend policy and your dividend does go up every year. But last year, you paid a special dividend of, uh, I think, 3p on top of the normal uh, dividend, which was 7.2p. So tell us thinking about that. And is that going to become a permanent feature when you've got surplus revenue, if you like, per share coming into the trust, if that happens? I don't think the board would like it to become an absolutely permanent feature. But clearly, we ended up with a very pleasing revenue account last year. And partly that was because we pay the dividends in sterling and most of the assets are outside sterling and sterling was weak. But I think it also goes to show that the sort of businesses that we invest in, on average, do generate a lot of underlying cash flow. And although they're growth oriented, they still have cash left over to reward their shareholders and it adds up. This is not a high yielding trust, but being able to show our investors that year after year, their dividends from the trust keep going up and go up quite rapidly during periods where markets might worry people, I hope is very helpful in reassuring people, reminding people that Investing isn't just about the headlines about investment banks and people predicting hard landings. It's about real companies producing real profits. And the dividend is a signal of that. The surplus revenue or the unexpectedly high revenue will probably go down a little bit this year. But it's still, you know, it was so large last year that we paid this special. Over time, you don't really want to be paying specials as well as regular ones. So we'll try to balance it out. I think we'll probably see how things go over this year. The revenue reserves in the fund, of course, are very healthy indeed. And that's despite the fact that the trust has issued shares most years. The trust itself is in very, very good shape for the future and should be able to produce good dividend growth. I'm slightly surprised that not all of the global trusts are because it should should have been an easy year to produce good dividend growth, frankly. I guess they're worried about being able to sustain it, I suppose. Just then on buybacks and so on, you've run a successful policy, managing the premium, the discount, uh, keeps it within a pretty tight range on the whole. And that's going to carry on, presumably. You're not going to change that policy. 
So the board has had a policy of um, issuing new shares when the shares trade at a 2% premium to NAV and to buy back shares when the company trades over a 2% discount to NAV. It's been very successful for shareholders over the years because it does mean that shareholders who stay with us benefit from this policy. They get slightly more asset value per each share that they hold on to compared with departing shareholders or new shareholders. Generally, we've been issuing in the last few weeks, uh, you might have noticed that like almost all investment trusts, we've ended up going to a 2% discount in the market. Actually, there haven't been any sellers at a 2% discount. So we would have bought in shares if there had been. Um, but the company can be quite thinly traded. We will buy back shares if shares are available outside that 2% discount, as is policy. I'm not quite sure why all the investment trust discounts have gone out recently, because um, as I say, market conditions are improving. Retail flows have been quite poor last year, but they don't seem too bad. I mean, I would hope that people are seeing a bit of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the economy and interest rates. Um, but perhaps it's a reflection that, you know, you get more money leaving your money in the bank. So, you know, we have to prove that we can deliver not just better investment returns, but real investment returns. And so perhaps it'll take a little while for confidence to come back. But there you have it. The policy will remain the same. And as you mentioned, you are a uh, UK listed investment trust. Therefore, you have results expressed in sterling and your share prices in sterling. Are you uh, worried about where the UK is? We've got about 5% of our assets in the UK, uh, one in a mining share, Rio Tinto, which should do very well out of China reopening. Um, but we also own some Seagrove and some Diageo. So whiskey sales around the world, they should be picking up as people go out, hopefully. And Seagro is a UK automated warehouse company, the old Slough Estate. So that is geared to the British economy. Speaking personally and professionally, I think the big risk to the UK economy was a Corbyn-type Labour government. If you don't have that sort of Labour government as a threat, international investors won't worry about a change of government from the current lot to whatever, a hung parliament or even a Labour majority. British institutions sort of chug along. You know, we, we love the soap opera of politics, but in terms of the economy and in terms of my attitude as an investor, British businesses are quite good at coping with changing circumstances and the best are world class. They don't tend to be particularly cheap, by the way. I mean, I don't regard the UK market. The UK index looks low because it's full of banks and mining shares, which are shares which trade on very low PEs. I'm sure that point's been made many times before. But the best quality companies in the UK, like Diageo, are as expensive as any equivalent in the world. But they're world class and they deserve a place in the portfolio. In terms of the Bank of England, yes. The British economy over my career, whenever there's been inflation, it's been a bigger problem here than elsewhere. And it's been harder to get rid of, probably because property is such an important part of our savings and our culture. So I'm afraid British interest rates will probably have to go up more than the Bank of England hopes. I think that that's a problem for next year, not this year. But unfortunately, you know, it will put pressure on younger people with mortgages and older people on pensions. So um, tricky times, but at least they're better recognised now than they were under the previous Prime Minister but one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that wasn't that long ago, of course. <laughs> been but, you know, at least the current lot, they may be unpopular, the current lot, but from a fund manager's point of view, they're competent. Simon, it's been great talking to you as always, and it's good to hear that you were seeing better times. How would you rate your mood in terms of optimism about where your kind of investment trust is going? 
the companies we invest in are very positive, got lots of new products. They cope with inflation. They feel very confident about the future, looking forward to reopening. I, I do think that there could be a, another pothole for us to deal with if inflation hangs around next year. But for the next 18 months, I think we're fine. And that'll do. <laughs> Uh, no doubt and other challenges will come along. But the great thing is the underlying companies we invest in are in rude health. And so they've shown that they can cope with the most extraordinary challenges the last few years. And that, I think, should make people, certainly makes me feel very confident having investments in them. On then to Rockwood Strategic, a trust now backed and managed by Harwood Capital, whose founder, Christopher Mills, is also responsible for three other trusts, North American smaller companies, Oryx International and Odyssean. Uh, Richard Staveley returned to manage this trust, Rockwood Strategic, having earlier resigned from Gresham House Strategic, as it was then known, in the course of the protracted mini-saga that saw Harwood Capital eventually replace Gresham House as the manager, though not before a tender offer had seen investors who opted out of the new arrangements received $20 million for their shares from the tender, leaving Rockwood with a modest market capitalization of just $40 million. That has since increased to a little over $50 million following a strong performance in 2022, making it the best performer of all, just ahead of its sister trust, Odyssean, in the UK smaller companies sector. Without going into all the details of the rather complicated background, suffice it to say that the trust has a distinctive approach looking for turnaround situations and fallen angels, down amongst what the manager calls the weeds of the FTSE indices, typically meaning companies of the market capitalization well below 250 million, companies which have once done well typically but have fallen on hard times, but still, in Harvard Capital's view, have a potentially bright future, despite being poorly researched and below the radar of wealth managers and other investment institutions. Harvard Capital's pitch, as uh, Richard Stavely explained to me, is to take a stake and try to help turn around the company's fortunes, as Odyssean also does, somewhat higher up the market capitalization scale. This approach has produced good results over the last five years. When you approach these companies, how does it normally play? Do they kind of say, oh Lord, here comes these troublemakers from Harvard? Or do they actually say, will you engage them? You know, Do they have to agree to be engaged with them that way before you get involved? It's obviously different, different cases. People aren't scared of us in that regard. We're mostly involved in success stories. Change is often already starting to happen. It's usually taking things on when there's been no change or change isn't obvious it's needed is probably too early in the investment cycle. It's when change is starting or it needs to, and there will be a recognition either by other shareholders or by the board, or by the management, that things need to start changing. And we will help catalyze that. So often it will be another shareholder, another fund manager might be goes had something that's just gone completely wrong for him. They might say, I've still got this stake, it's a liquid, you should look at this. And then we can go in and go, well, you know, your other shareholders won't change. Now, sometimes we might buy the stake straight up because they just need the money and we can get our stake through that. Other times we'll just take a small position and then start to get to know, to build, build a relationship with management. And then they understand where we're going. Our most recent investment that's been realized was a company called Crestcheck, where we had one board representative from Harwood on the board. And then we'd uh, proposed someone, not as a board representative of Harwood, but proposed another candidate. So we had two people on the board that knew us very well and understood shareholder value. At 
the end of that process where the company ended up being sold, we made 4.8 times our money. The chairman of the company is given a quote that I can't remember verbatim, but essentially going, Harwood were great. They engaged. They helped us sort of catalyze, sort this all out. And we're trying to explain, you know, change is always painful for everybody, but it typically works out for shareholders when we get involved. So it's not a case simply of just coming in and firing the CEO and then getting somebody else in to run the company? Absolutely not. Often the management teams are fine and it's the board that aren't allowing the management team to fly or the board are too risk averse or the board don't want to accept that a strategic decision that's been made is being poor and needs to be unwound, but the operations team are actually good at their job. It's not always just straight come in, change the management. And it is very constructive. It's it's constructive engagement is the sort of phrase we kind of like to use. It's not activists with a big A, like the crystal amber stuff, or like how the Americans tend to go about it. It's more trying to work with them. The problem is weight of arguments themselves. You can't rely on the weight of a strong argument to have change to happen. You need to have a stake so that they are forced to make sure they are taking you seriously. They have to take notice. So you said, obviously, it's very time-consuming, and you said you talked about 15 positions, but I think what you describe in your material and presentations is you have a kind of half a dozen ones which are sort of currently top of your agenda, if you like, and then you've got some other positions which you are hoping will develop into something more interesting. Is that right? That's right, yeah. We have five to ten, what we call core. Cause we definitely take 5% and it's where we're engaged. We have a full thesis and we're happy for those to become a big percentage of the portfolio, at least a 4% size position and higher. Core positions require input from our investment advisory group, which I've set up at Harwood. Christopher Mills is on that advisory group, but alongside a number of other very experienced fund managers, a guy called Jamie Brook, who's been investing for 30 years, Adam Parker, one of the founders of Majedi Asset Management, and a couple of other excellent investors. They will then give me additional challenge uh, advice, maybe contacts that are relevant to that particular company whilst we're doing additional due diligence on them. And then that justifies having a really big position. Outside those core five to 10, we then have what what I call this two types of them, springboards or opportunities. The springboards are ones that could become core, but maybe there's not enough stock around at the moment to have a big position in the company, or we're just watching it, we're waiting, we want to get to know it better before we take a really big position. By the way, Jonathan, you'll appreciate I can't tell you which ones are the springboards, i.e. which we might be big buyers of, because that would be giving away. Or the opportunities were to ones where we just think change is underway anyway, maybe a bit more liquid, the larger ones in our bit of the universe, maybe the 150, 200 million type companies, where change is happening. We can see that, but maybe the heavy lifting's already been done, but because they're still very small, no one cares, or... There may be another investor is actually agitated for change, change is underway, and we can slightly coattail on the process. And we just think it's a very cheap share that we think we can make lots of money on. Best example of that would be MC Saatchi, where I was able to do a lot of due diligence on it. I met various board members. We spoke to clients, people in the industry, and we took about a 1% stake, which clearly they could ignore what we felt should happen. But at the same time as taking the 1% stake, there was massive management change going on, strategy change. And although it was a small position when we bought up, it's now 8% of the portfolio. Uh, we were buying between 55 and 75p. It's now £2 a share. We think it's worth at least £3 a share. So that one, we haven't gone to become core, although it's still quite a big position because it's done well. Okay. So if you're down in the weeds, I mean, there'd be no shortage of companies down there that you might be interested in. Is your problem trying to pick which ones to go for? Because, I mean, there are lots of this, a thousand companies to choose from or something, including AIM anyway. 
<laughs> not all of them are doing very well, let's put it that way. How do you decide on the, which five or six are going to go as your core position? So there is a filtering process. So right now, we've got six stocks that are in our pipeline that we've done all the due diligence and we're about to potentially execute on. And I can come on to why we might do that on mass rather than just one by one at the moment. Outside that, we have about 22 companies where we're in partial due diligence or we've sort of completed the due diligence, but it's watch list. I, it's not ready to actually execute on. And then we have another further 20 companies that have come in through our funnel. Our funnels come in through quite quantitative, actually, basis based on um, valuation metrics and depressed profitability relative to history, which even in small companies, you can get the quant information on. We are biased to small companies that have been small for quite a while. So things that you know have listed in the last two or three years probably haven't got enough history, probably not proven, in fact, whatsoever, won't be of interest to us. But they're often ones that have been around. So we can look at what the companies used to make and what they make now. So it's mainly that, that's the way we funnel it. You know. It's a bit like Warren Buffett's great quote about looking for the fat pitch, although I'm probably looking for a sort of a wrong length, wrong line and quite a slow ball so that you can literally just sort of bend Stokes it out of the park. But you don't get many of those in an inning. So you've just got to sort of keep waiting till something really, really works. We had one last year, which is still a super exciting holding for us called RMPLC. And again, great case study for us. It's been around for over 20 years. It's an educational and software company based in the UK. They sell their resources to 90% of UK primary schools. It's been around, as I said, a long time. It has sales of over £200 million. And its average market cap for the last 10 years has probably been about 150, 170, 180 million. Anyway, last year, they scored one of the biggest own goals that they could possibly do. They did one of these dreaded ERP or enterprise resource planning software systems across their entire three division group at the same time as trying to consolidate the warehouses into one warehouse. And lo and behold, um, it all went completely wrong. Now, they'd actually signed off to go into debt as a company based on a £17 million budget to do this process. But it went completely out of control and debt shot up to about 40 million. And as you can remember last year, people's sort of risk appetite was pretty challenged anyway. So also because of illiquidity, it's another important point. But earlier in the year, they'd been kicked out of the FTSE all share because of lack of trading in their shares. This is when they were 90 million market cap. So they had to place out four or five percent of index trackers into a market not really interested in small cap at the time with most fund managers getting redemptions. So the shares had collapsed down to about 80, 60 million. And when they actually sort of explained that the project was going really badly in August, the shares ended up collapsing to 25 million market cap. We were able to buy a stake in the business, about 8% of the company at an average price of about 30p, which is just ludicrous. We think it's worth about 170 to 180 million pounds. It's already rallied now to 60 million. And, you know, the process for that, that's, as I said, the investment advisory group have been involved, but we've spoken to customers, to former management, former board members. We've got accounts for many years in that company. And I've been up to see their amazing new warehouse, which is, Cost them a lot of money, but it absolutely it looks like the Four Seasons as far as I'm, I'm concerned. I mean, it's all Swiss equipment. They've really spec'd it brilliantly. It will be fantastic for the business once they've locked down the project. But it's that kind of uh, waiting for that and then going, taking a significant position and backing yourself at that stage. Fine enough, I remember the RM because it was a company that uh, way, way back in the day that Jim Slater was quite keen on in the days when he was still around and uh, doing his rather high-profile activities. Anyway, so there is a case, so the CEO did go there. I mean, you got a new CEO. Was that 
something you helped engineer or was it uh, happening? No, actually, in that instance, I'd love to be able to put our hands on that. But actually, the board have really taken control of the situation during the year. They've still got um, an interim finance director. We've met the interim finance director a few times. Uh, We've met the chair a number of times about what we think should happen to the business. They've run the process for the new CEO. Uh, we have already met the CEO. I suspect almost no shareholders have already because we just asked and they said, well, he's not going to be able to tell you much about the situation. And so can you just wait? And then we would say, well, which is what I said, which was, well, let's get to know each other. What kind of a man are you? What's your experience? Tell me about it. And you get, you learn a lot from spending an hour. Financiers don't have that sort of time. So he's going to be very, very good. I'm very excited about the new CEO. So the chair's done a great job with that. We think the board itself probably does need further evolution. One of the NEDs is at nine years, so we think that there should be a further board change. But the company has, as I said, grasped the metal. They've actually, since we purchased, they've also sold off some non-core assets, which have reduced that debt back down again already. So they are you know, taking their responsibilities seriously. I think for us, where we will be pushing, and we think that other shareholders, and in fact, we have reached out to other shareholders to explain our views on the company, that this business has three divisions. We think the three divisions are worth a lot individually. And we think the best thing for shareholder value is for the company to go through a process of disposing of each of the three divisions in an orderly manner over the next few years. And then that will generate significant shareholder value for everybody. And we want that argument to be properly taken on by the board, which we, we suspect they know that will be the most sensible way forward. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.